Hello, I'm Glenn Richardson. I'm Professor of Early Modern History at St Mary's University in Twickenham. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Sir Richard Evans and Gresham College for the opportunity, the invitation of delivering a Gresham lecture this year. And I'd like to thank you for your interest and for watching. My lecture today is entitled War Games at the Field of Cloth of Gold. And the Field of Cloth of Gold was an extraordinary meeting that took place in northern France in the summer of 1520, so 500 years ago, between King Henry VIII of England and King Francis I of France. Um, known forever after, for reasons which will become clear, I trust, as the Field of Cloth of Gold. Uh, the two kings brought about 5,000 people each with them in their entourages uh, to meet each other. Uh, and they were accommodated in a series of uh, tents and pavilions, uh, dressed over with rich fabrics, including the cloth of gold, which gives the event its name. So 500 years or so, more or less to the day, since the temporary banqueting house that Henry VIII built at uh, the event, were the foundations of which were laid, and um, within a week uh, of the anniversary of their meeting on the 7th of June, what should we make of this extraordinary diplomatic event? Because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, uh, according to uh, modern historians. Uh, in 1520, uh, Henry was, um, he'd acceded to the throne in 1509. Uh, he was then 29 years old. Francis I of France had become king in 1515. Uh, he was then 25. Uh, he had uh, some experience of warfare. Both of the kings, in fact, had had experience of warfare. Henry had invaded France in 1513 and had conquered the town of Tirouan and the city of Tournai, pursuant to his claim, derived from his ancestors in the Hundred Years' War, to be the King of France. Francis uh, had, when he became king in 1515, had pursued his own dynastic ambitions uh, in Italy. Uh, he claimed, through his ancestral connections, to be the Duke of Milan, and in September 1515, uh, at the Battle of Marignano, he had a spectacular victory uh, and conquered the entire duchy. Um, so there was a great rivalry between these two princes from that moment, really. Uh, Henry was very conscious of the younger man, Francis. Francis was also very conscious of Henry as being slightly older, and uh, I think he respected Henry, but there was a keen sense of rivalry. But the meeting in 1520 wasn't held to enable them to resolve that rivalry or to negotiate some deal between them. What they did was to meet to inaugurate uh, something called a universal peace throughout Christendom, uh, which they both become part of uh, and which had been concluded in London about just under two years earlier in October 1518. Um, for reasons which we could go into, but we don't have time, the tournament was the means by which medieval elites decided the, how you celebrated peace. In other words, you made peace and then you pretended to be at war, which is why 
the uh, lectures called war games because that's what the field of cloth of gold essentially was it was a tournament and i'll say a little bit more about what happened later but the whole event was characterized by a demonstrative a very competitive masculinity which was articulated and, and in a sense controlled by the um, knightly or chivalric code which both of these kings still believed in and acted out of so in that sense it was literally a, a war game but my argument would be that it had serious real consequences that the interactions between these two men had serious consequences for uh, the politics um, and the military history of Europe in the following decade. So this view that the field of cloth of gold meant something to its participants and should mean something to us um, stands slightly at odds with the view of it taken by 19th and 20th century diplomatic historians. For the most part, the consensus seems to have been that either uh, the meeting was a um, a deliberate effort to deceive the other as to their uh, as to each other's real plans for war or else it was as one uh, commentator uh, Joyce and Russell who wrote in the 1960s put it um, a party on a on a grand scale which had no particular meaning and no tangible result um, as I was researching anglo-french relations um, as, as part of my my own um, initial uh, doctoral work, um, I, to my mind, that seemed very odd. Um, all the accounts which we have indicate that they spent vast amounts of money on this thing. And so to my mind, um, this raised this characterization of the field of cloth of gold as being nothing particularly serious, um, raised quite a few questions like, why would you spend vast amounts of money on something that neither side believed in, uh, particularly as Anglo-French rivalry had been rekindled uh, only in 1513 and there was this intense personal rivalry between the two kings. Um, and why would you spend this vast amount of, of money uh, if you on, a, on just for a party? I mean, we know medieval and Renaissance elites did go in for extravagant displays and, and parties and things, but um, that's that's something different just from completely pointless frivolity. So I began to think and I, I decided to proceed from the premise that people don't normally spend huge amounts of money on, on something that they don't believe in. So it must have meant something to them. And it's for us to try to interpret what it was that they what they thought. Um, because to bring 5,000 of your of your courtiers in your entourage, to get them assembled, to bring them, particularly for Henry, to bring them from England to France, just for the sake of it, seemed just, no, that, that didn't work. So, why and how then? I think we have to see the field of cloth of gold uh, against the background of nearly two centuries of conflict in uh, Europe, in, between European states, both large and small, princely and republican, um, which, and not least, of course, England and France. Um, the defeat in the Hundred Years' War of 1453 led to the unravelling of the, the English state in effect. Um, at its highest levels in, in dynastic conflict in the Wars of the Roses. Um, meanwhile, the French monarchy uh, under Charles VII, uh, Louis XI and Charles VIII and Louis XII 
all they all pursued claims against the Italian states, particularly uh, the Duchy of Milan, but also the Kingdom of Naples. And into these Italian wars, as they were called, um, the Emperor Maximilian uh, and others were routinely and destructively drawn. Uh, and that, that created a, a situation of near constant warfare. As well as that, uh, in 1453, of course, uh, Constantinople uh, falls to the, uh, the Turks, uh, and within a short while, by, by about 1517, uh, the Turks had also, the Ottomans had also overwhelmed much of what we now think of as the Middle East and were threatening uh, Europe in the Balkans. Something had to be done, and it was against this background of turmoil within Europe, or Christendom, as they would have called it at the time, and an apparent threat from without, that Pope Leo X, the Medici Pope Giovanni de' Medici, Pope Leo X decided to establish uh, a, an international truce between Christian princes in order that they could uh, uh, form a coalition against the threat of the Ottomans. Uh, it was actually Cardinal Wolsey, uh, and of course he invited uh, Henry, Francis, everybody in Europe to be a part of it. Uh, it was actually Cardinal Wolsey uh, who brought a, a different idea to the table, and that was, instead of a temporary truce, that they should have a, a multilateral non-aggression pact. It became known as the Universal Peace, and the idea was that uh, everybody signed up to it, and uh, anybody who broke the agreement would be attacked by all the others, so collective security. I mean, in, in many ways, the, um, the, the ancestor, if you will, um, of, um, uh, I suppose, NATO or, or the United Nations. I think particularly NATO, because of the idea of collective security and joint action um, against an enemy. And the rhetoric of, of Christian virtue um, uh, as peace as, as part of, of what a king should do. Yes, kings should be able to fight in war, but also uh, they should be able to maintain Christian peace. Um, that, uh, that fitted well with the critique of war, which had been enunciated by Erasmus of Rotterdam uh, and Sir Thomas More, for example, in England. And so that was very much the the um, plan behind uh, Cardinal Wolsey's um, proposal. The Treaty of Lodi of, of 1454 was uh, a forerunner uh, of the universal peace. Um, but I think, as I said earlier, um, I think it's um, it, it's reasonable to see it as the the antecedent of uh, of something like uh, NATO. It was to be secured by the betrothal. Uh, of the Dauphin, Francois. He was born in February 1518, uh, and Cardinal Wolsey memorably told the Venetian ambassador when he heard of the news of the, of the boy's birth that this would be the means whereby he would bring together England and France. So the Dauphin, Francois, was betrothed to uh, Henry's daughter, Princess Mary, who was by then two years old, having been born in 1516. So, um, so all that is the, is the sort of idealistic side of things, but, and this is the important point, peacemaking was never done for its own sake, certainly not in this period of, of almost incessant warfare. Uh, peace had to be made with what they called honour, that is, advantage. 
that to make peace had to be seen by uh, each participant to it uh, as an expression of his own strength, of his own uh, capacity and his, his power to levy war, even if in this instance he was deciding not to do so. Uh, and what happened in 1518, uh, it was a complicated uh, international situation. But Francis was desperate to hold on to Milan, which he'd conquered, as I said, in 1515. And so uh, a universal peace in one way suited him because nobody else would be able to attack his territory. On the other hand, a universal peace might prevent him from pursuing uh, his dynastic ambitions in Italy further. And that is precisely, of course, what Wolsey is trying to bring about. Francis has his own game as well, though, in that he has been negotiating by 1518 with the electors of the Holy Roman Empire. Emperor Maximilian von Habsburg uh, was getting elderly and was known to be ill, was expected to die relatively soon. Uh, and so Francis had begun negotiations with the electors and had secured, he thought, sufficient backers among the electors to, give a, to, to make a plausible claim to the empire itself. Uh, so in one way, being involved in, a, in an international league suited him very well. The other important thing about Francis's participation in this universal peace is that he was given the opportunity as an ally of Henry to buy back the city of Tournai, which had been lost in the war in 1513. And that's something he'd wanted to do. That, of course, restored his credibility. He got back the city lost by his predecessor, Louis XII. So that also looked good. It did mean that he had to pay Henry an increased annual payment. Um, both Henry VII and before him, Edward IV, had negotiated treaties with the French kings, whereby they agreed not to, to levy war against France in return for fairly sizable amounts of money, which were to be paid... Um, uh, yearly in, in yearly installments, 745,000 crowns and figures of that sort, which was really quite significant. And Francis had to agree to renew those treaties and, and pay Henry. So it was a big investment uh, for Francis, uh, and but that was one that he was uh, prepared to make uh, because he, as I said, had, had a bigger agenda. Uh, Henry, of course, uh, wanted to be put back at the forefront of international relations. Uh, he'd rather been sidelined by Francis's victory at Marignano and despite trying to get various alliances together to, to take the younger man down, um, he'd not really been able to be successful. So I think it was Wolsey who was able to persuade Henry that if you can't make magnificent peace in this, in, in this circumstance, because you don't have allies and, and it's difficult, then why not make the making of peace a, a magnificent thing which, which brings you back into international prominence. So that's what Wolsey is, is advocating, and Henry's got the sense to see that, that that's what he's after. So anyway, by autumn of 1518, um, this is the, the situation, and so they all uh, go into, the, uh, into, the, into this universal peace. And one of the terms of that universal peace is that Henry and Francis will meet together personally to inaugurate their alliance agreed in 1518. And that's why the Field of Cloth of Gold is held. So um, the meeting, uh, you should be able to see uh, a map there. The meeting 
finally took place in June 1520 between uh, the town of Guine and the town of Ardre. Uh, Guine is in the area known then as the Pale of Calais, now the Pas de Calais, um, which was held, of course, by the kings of England since its conquest by Edward III in about 1347. And Ardre was just across the border in Picardy. So the approximately 5,000 odd people that Francis brought with him all pitched up, as it were, uh, in late May 1520. They were accommodated in a multitude of, uh, they were accommodated in the town itself, in the villages which were surrounding it, but also in a multitude of tents that had been built, not on site, but um, in the town of Tours, which is on the confluence of the Loire and the Cher rivers. Um, and so by early May 1520, so about this time, uh, 1520, there were thought to be about 170 men and 120 women as part of a team who were uh, stitching together canvas panels to make tents. And they made an estimated three to 400 tents, the tallest and largest of which was for the king and his immediate entourage. And about 400 pack horses brought all the tents uh, and the rich cloths that they were to be dressed with up from uh, Tours, up through the Loire Valley, up past uh, Normandy and up into uh, Picardy. Once there on site, they were erected and then, of course, dressed with um, cloth of gold, cloth of silver, damask, um, satin, velvet, velour, most of it, um, what they, they said, strewn or, or the English expression powdered with fleur-de-lis, the royal symbol of the French monarchy. Um, and the, the biggest of the tents was, was held up by two ships' masts that were lashed together. Um, and then it was dressed over in the manner I've described. There were also tents uh, with, which had dressings in the livery colours of uh, tawny black and white, which were Francis's colours. Henry VIII's colours were um, uh, white and green. And you should be able to uh, see some uh, pictures of uh, tents. Um, they're, they're actually the English ones because the English also built a series of tents and the illustrations, uh, which hopefully you're seeing, uh, were uh, designed for the English, but the tents of the French must have looked um, very similar. Francis also had a accommodation in a temporary uh, house and a sort of, you know, an hotel particulier um, uh, in the in the town of Ardennes, and this was where Henry VIII was entertained on several occasions during the Field of Cloth of Gold. It might have been designed by the Italian Domenico da Cortona. Uh, he worked for Francis and his predecessors. Uh, he built temp temporary banqueting palaces in, in other parts of um, France for different occasions. Um, uh, the evidence is, is sketchy, but he may well have been involved. But it was, um, it was a reasonably um, nice dwelling. An Italian observer called it um, very beautiful but neither as beautiful nor as costly as that of England. And I'll say more about the English one in a minute. The English chronicler Edward Hall describes Henry VIII being received by the French Queen, Queen Claude, um, at this reception uh, building uh, in the town. 
and there were other reception rooms hung with all kinds of different hangings and the whole thing was was meant to be a, a splendid a reception uh, location uh, for the English court and for Henry VIII and an expression of Francis's sophistication as a patron both in its architecture and its decoration. Now of course the English were determined uh, not to be outdone by this and perhaps the most famous uh, aspect or, or of the Field of Cloth of Gold is the building there of a temporary banqueting house just outside the town of Guin, which you should be able to see. Uh, its basic structure and decoration seems to have been, as, is, as it is rendered in the Hampton Court painting, the Field of Cloth of Gold. But for our current circumstances, um, there would have been a, an exhibition at Hampton Court in May, June and July of this year for the Field of Cloth of Gold anniversary. Sadly, um, well, we don't know. It, it might be open in the autumn. Uh, let's hope it is. Anyway, the temporary banqueting palace was begun in April, and when it was completed, it was 328 feet square with the floor, sorry, four blocks uh, arranged around a central courtyard. It was really quite big. Um, it, if, if, uh, if you know, or if it means anything to you, the uh, Tom Quad at Christchurch in Oxford is 382 feet square. So, and that's one of the biggest quads in Oxford. And the temporary palace would have been able to, according to, to Julian Munby from, from Oxford Archaeology, the temporary palace would have been able to fit quite snugly into Tom Quad at, at Christchurch, if, if that's a helpful analogy. It was pretty big anyway. And to build such a huge um, palace, a temporary banqueting house, for only two weeks is, again, an expression of intent, an expression of capacity um, to do things. It's a, it's a big project. In my book on the Field of Cloth of Gold, I made a comparison with the uh, Bird's Nest Stadium at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Um, in, in the sense it's a temporary building designed to say a lot about the people who built it. Uh, the walls of Henry's palace were built on stone foundations and were of um, a height uh, of about sort of eight feet, of the, the, the stone and brick. And then above the brickwork, there were timber framed walls um, made of, of canvas. They reached to about 30 feet high. Uh, the palace, as you see in the painting, was crenellated and had brick-built towers at its corners. Its roof was made of oiled canvas painted in lead colour to simulate slates. And the most prominent feature of the building, of the elevation, was the ornate uh, gatehouse with the scalloped shell, you know, very classic Renaissance decorative image, the, the scalloped shell pediment, which was surmounted by a figure of St. Michael between two monumental roses, uh, and it was capped with a, with a smaller figure of St. Michael. Uh, probably they put the figure of St. Michael, the patron saint of French chivalry, on an English palace as a compliment to the French king and his knights and nobles who were entertained uh, in the palace. Uh, and you can see, hopefully, uh, images there of, of St. Michael. Uh, the ground floor of the palace contained offices for the household officials. There was also a gallery that led from the king's side, um, the left-hand side as we look at it, back to Gein's Castle, 
which the English chronicler Edward Hall, who I mentioned before, said it was designed, quote, for the secret passage of the king's person uh, into a secret lodging within the same castle, the more for the king's ease. Although that, that, uh, that gallery or, or link back to Gein's castle, which you see in the painting, doesn't, doesn't actually appear in the painting. It does, however, remind us that they were really very unsure about how all of this would go. The rivalry, the, the, um, the intenseness of it all, the opportunity that both sides feared they might be attacked by the other and that they would literally need a safe place if that happened tells you, I mean, some people feared that the French were going to try to take back the Pas de Calais under the cover of this meeting. So there was real tension and real uncertainty about the, uh, for all the talk of peace and, and, and brotherhood, there was real tension between the English and the French as to, as to what was going to happen. Um, now, it's unlikely that a palace of that size could have been made entirely from uh, wood, etc., on site, although a lot of it was built on site. Uh, it's thought that at least part of it was brought across, shipped, made up, framed uh, in sections in England, and then shipped across the channel on barges in the weeks before the field, and then put into place uh, when uh, we got there. Um, archaeologists are still looking at, at um, the evidence about that, but it, it seems it was partly built um, from materials which they found there, uh, and there were lots, uh, hundreds of workers, um, pioneers, um, uh, sort of carpenters, all kinds of painters, plasterers, uh, people, hundreds of people involved in building this thing. One of its distinguishing features also uh, was the amount of glass. Um, the, the walls were sort of made of canvas and timber framed, but, the, but the, within them was set real glass, which was bought not from England, because England didn't really have much of a glass industry then, but from, from Saint-Omer, from um, the Netherlands. Uh, about 5,000 feet of glass was used, and the French called it the Crystal Palace. Um, and that, again, is another interesting allusion. There was, of course, a Crystal Palace in the 19th century, which was an expression of the power of uh, British industry and the empire, etc. Well, if you think of the, the, the 19th century Crystal Palace, um, uh, which was the great project of Prince Albert, of course, uh, and think of Henry VIII doing something similar with his banqueting house at Guin. So... Uh, to the left of the principal entry on the first floor level, there were three apartments for Cardinal Wolsey. You should be able to see a, a schematic floor plan. Uh, two halls and a chamber in lodgings which extended from the gatehouse around the angle of the building. Uh, and then behind to the right of the main entrance, so opposite to Wolsey's, were a set of similar arrangements for Mary, Duchess of Suffolk, who, of course, had formerly been the Queen of France, married to Louis XII now married to Charles Brandon, Henry's friend, Henry's friend Duke of Suffolk. Uh, and uh, behind Wolsey's apartments uh, on the left-hand side were Henry's quarters, and behind Mary Tudor's apartments on the right-hand side were Queen Catherine's. And the royal apartments were connected with a passage underneath the floor. Uh, the interiors, of course, were very richly furnished, uh, with tapestries and with rushes on the floor. Uh, Queen Catherine's principal chamber was um, described as having tapestries of gold and silk 
in floral and foliage or milfe uh, design. It was estimated by the Venetian ambassador to be worth about seven ducats per yard, so a lot of money. Now, the fourth range, opposite the gateway of the palace, housed a large hall on the upper level, which could be divided into uh, a range of different sized apartments for entertainment. So you could have a banquet in there, and that's what, of course, it was principally built for. You could have a banquet, but also uh, you could divide it up into smaller dining chambers. Uh, however, nothing of that is, is extant in the painting. There was also a chapel which extended out beyond the back of the banqueting hall, uh, but nothing of the chapel, uh, however, is shown in the uh, Hampton Court painting. So the, uh, the field itself, um, the, the place uh, which was set out for the tournament, and you should be able to see uh, a, a part of the tournament field um, which was built, um, was rectangular in shape and it was about 900 feet long and about 328 feet wide and it was of course the tournament for which they were all there. It was roughly along an east-west axis with Arra uh, at one end and Guine at the other. Uh, alongside uh, the tilt or the, the barrier down which the knights would joust there were uh, stands for an audience uh, it also featured a royal pavilion, which was used sometimes by the kings, but more frequently by the queens, to watch uh, the competition. The preparation of the tournament, uh, well, the preparation of each of the of the camps, as it were, the, the French and the English camps, were obviously done by the respective sides. What's interesting is that the field, the tournament field, was actually a joint enterprise. Uh, it was very tricky to do. And there was a lot of arguments about where it should be located and, and where everything should be on it. And, and um, if we had more time, I could say more about that. But what's, what's interesting is it, it was a joint Anglo-French enterprise. So you have to imagine bricklayers and carpenters and pioneers on both sides working alongside each other. And to the extent that they're different languages allowed, talking about presumably arguing about building techniques. And as far as I'm aware, it is the only time that uh, that I've come across uh, in the history of civil engineering projects between England or Britain and France uh, the, the, that you had the, this kind of joint cooperation. The next time it happens, of course, is the 1960s with the building of Concord and then the 1990s with the building uh, of the Channel Tunnel. So the field of cloth of gold has its own place uh, in the history of uh, Anglo-French civil engineering as well as politics. So the Field of Cloth of Gold meeting actually happened on the 7th of June 1520 uh, when Francis uh, and Henry met personally. Francis had come up from the Loire Valley where he'd started the year and he had collected and assembled his entourage on the way. Uh, of course his um, queen, Queen Claude, uh, and his mother, Louise of Savoy, and his sister, Marguerite of Navarre. His wife, Claude, was then about eight, well, seven, eight months pregnant, and her pregnancy had been a big issue about delaying it. And, um, but she eventually did go with her husband uh, to the field. And as I said, the entourage of about 5,000 or so people that accompanied him uh, and they arrived um, 
around about the end of May, the 31st of, of May. Uh, meanwhile, in England, the over the course of uh, mid-April mid to uh, and May, the noblemen and gentlemen, uh, their wives and servants in comparable numbers to the French, uh, had organised themselves uh, at Dover. It was slightly different for the English because, of course, they had to, uh, whereas the French could sort of just meander to where they were needed, the English had to, of course, be shipped across uh, from Dover uh, to Calais. So they, there were lots of elaborate plans to get people uh, from wherever they lived down to Dover uh, in time for crossing over. Henry himself left London on the 20th of May and he came by slow stages down to Canterbury. Uh, and uh, he met uh, over the Whitsun uh, weekend, um, he met uh, the Emperor Charles V, who having heard about this meeting, decided that he needed to intervene. Um, and again, it's a whole side story to what's going on, but um, he met Henry and Catherine in May at Canterbury uh, and then continued his journey. He'd come up from uh, Coruña uh, in Spain and was going back to the Netherlands and to Germany to, as it were, present himself as the elected emperor for the first time. And so he called in on the way to see um, Uncle Harry and Auntie Catherine, um, whom he was uh, related, of course. Um, and then the day he left, that was the day 31st of May that Henry and Catherine crossed the Narrow Sea, as it was called then, not the English Channel, the Narrow Sea uh, on uh, an ancestor of the royal yacht called the Catherine Plaisance. The painting in the at Hampton Court called the Embarkation at Dover supposedly shows Henry's crossing to France on that day in 1520. Uh, in fact, um, we know that the, the ship that he's on, the Henri Dieu, known usually as the Great Harry, uh, was too big to get into Dover Harbour. And uh, although it was, it was based in Southampton and Portsmouth, uh, and it uh, wasn't involved. So he went on a much smaller, specially made, uh, faster vessel called the Catherine Plaisance. And, but the, the painting still gives a, a lively impression of what it would have been like with everybody on board the ships and boats rowing out and latecomers being put on board and supplies and all the rest of it and, and then the, the ships turning towards France. Apparently the weather was good. Uh, they left about seven and it was sunny and they had good, uh, good wind, um, a bit like the April weather we've had in, in, in 2020. Uh, and they sailed across and they were there by 11 o'clock. Uh, which, uh, when you consider that it could sometimes take a day or more to get across the uh, the narrow sea, was pretty good. Uh, so from Calais, the royal couple moved to Guine on the 5th of June, uh, by which time, of course, Francis was at Ardua, and Wolsey went over to meet the French king and uh, soothe nerves and pat hands and say it's all going to be all right and it's going to be fun and, you know, uh, we all do love each other, really, don't we? And eventually, on um, about five o'clock in the afternoon on the 7th of June, the two kings set out from their respective towns and they met at a, a, a specially prepared meeting point known as the Golden Vale. It's very hard to see where it might have been in the modern topography, but it was about halfway between the, the, the two towns. 
and surrounded by hundreds of uh, nobles and gentry and escorted by mounted and uh, troops and foot guards, um, they, they both met. Um, and the processions uh, which, which escorted them stopped several times, uh, both sides still uncertain about whether or not this was actually a military ambush that they were walking into. But, um, you know, they sent out scouts and checked out that everything was as it should be. And eventually the two kings did, did come together. The moment of the meeting is depicted um, in the scenes um, which were a series of bas-reliefs that were uh, made in the courtyard of, uh, of the Hotel de Boucterold in Rouen. And you should be able to see those now. Um, they're, they're quite interesting because... Uh, they show the two kings meeting. Uh, each flourishes, like raises his right hand, his, his hat in his hand, and extends it in a, in a flourish of greeting, which is uh, the written accounts say that that's exactly what happened. Uh, and their horses, as you can see, they, they prance and canter, and there's a real kind of liveliness in the depiction of the two kings meeting, which I think is, is really good. And you don't get that so much in the painting. The Hampton Court painting shows Henry apparently processing into Geen, but uh, Sidney Anglo and, and other art history experts over the years have said that it accords very closely, and indeed it does, with the descriptions by Milanese and Venetian ambassadors uh, of, the, of the sequence of the procession on the 7th of June. So if you look at the Hampton Court painting, what you're seeing is Henry processing not into the town of Geen on the 5th of June, but actually going to meet Francis on the 7th of June. Um, so after dismounting, uh, the two kings entered uh, into a tent, uh, and that too is depicted in the Hampton Court painting, and I'll say a little bit more about what happened, their conversation, uh, a bit later. So that was uh, Thursday the 7th of June. Um, they had the weekend off. They had a, the first of the, of the several banquets which they gave to each other, um, on the Sunday, and then um, uh, they also, well, the, the tournament started uh, on the, the Monday um, of the following week. And um, Henry and Francis participated as the challengers for the tournament. So they never, they never competed against each other. That would, of course, be just too dangerous uh, and too much direct competition. Henry was a very good jouster, uh, so was Francis. Uh, Henry probably was a bit bit better. Um, so what they did instead was they, they both were the captains, as it were, of the challengers, and they fought against, with, their, with their, their team, they fought against mixed teams of English and French knights who fought against them as the answerers. So, so they were setting up a, a tournament of peace and, and inviting everybody to, to come and fight against them. So that's how they avoided fighting against each other and allowed them to be uh, brothers in arms and, and all that sort of thing. Um, because uh, Francis had agreed on the 7th of June to come into uh, onto English territory, um, in return he was allowed to devise the competitions for the, the tournament and they consisted of three competitions, jousting um, along the tilt or jousting at the, at the barrier, uh, a freer form of, of combat between pairs of, of knights called a, a, a tawny, uh, and then also fighting over the barriers on foot. And um, 
Both kings wore a succession of spectacular tournament costumes decorated with dynastic and chivalric illusions, um, uh, looking marvellous. For example, on each of the four days he jousted, Francis's costumes progressively spelled out in words and symbols of books, chains, feathers and the like, the phrase, heart fastened in pain endless, when she delivereth me not of bonds, um, which was sort of interpreted to mean that, that Francis was a, of, a, of a very passionate nature, that um, through learning and wisdom he endured the pains of, of courtly or chivalric love and all this sort of stuff. So they're, they're you know, playing the part of chivalric heroes uh, uh, in that way. Henry's costumes are interesting in that, so far as we can tell, they are much more nationalistic. They um, deploy symbols of roses and pomegranates and um, images of the waters of the of the of the channel um, uh, very much more uh, about don't take me on you know because I'm uh, if, if you take me on you'll you'll be in trouble kind of thing um, the, the the accounts survive and there's many descriptions which we haven't got time to to go into here but it's interesting Francis's approach is much more esoteric in one sense and and Henry's is much more directly nationalistic the surviving score checks, which you can see, uh, which are very magnificent, and they're held in the, uh, the Society of Antiquaries, uh, but they show that the jousting wasn't actually that good uh, for reasons lots to do with the weather, um, as is often the way uh, in the northwest of Europe in June. Uh, they had rain and wind, and that blew down some of the tents, but also spoiled the jousting on several days. Uh, for the foot combat, Henry had wanted to wear a revolutionary suit of armour which uh, had been made for him by the Royal Armoury, and you can see an image of it there. It, it completely encased the, in the, the wearer, uh, so there were no gaps, unlike in a conventional suit of armour, uh, there, were, there were no gaps, and it was very, very amazing workmanship, and of course he wanted to show that off as, look what my people could do. Remember that Francis had been given the right to determine the rules of the tournament. Well, the minute he heard about this snazzy armour that Henry was about to wear, he said, no, you can't have that. No, sorry. We all have to wear the traditional tonlet or protective skirt, um, which is what you see in the other picture there. Much to Henry's chagrin, uh, they had to adopt, adapt the armour uh, in the, the last days before the, the competition to, to conform with the rules. So, uh, so Francis won on, on that particular competition. Um, as I said, on the two Sundays of the event and on the final day, the 24th of June, the jousting was suspended and because it, it had all finished by about the 20th of June anyway. But on those days, on the Sundays, there were banquets uh, and um, the in order to keep strict reciprocity and equality, at no time did Henry and Francis eat as each other's guest. Um, instead, what happened was that Henry and his courtiers went to Ardres, where they were entertained by Queen Claude and Louise de Savoie. And at the same, literally at the same time, they crossed each other as they were going between their, almost as hostages for each other. Uh, and Francis came to Guine, and he was entertained by Queen Catherine and Cardinal Wolsey in the English court. 
The banquets, again, uh, time prohibits a detailed description of them, but they were deliberately ostentatious. Um, they were astoundingly expensive. The, we, we still have the kitchen accounts, which, for example, um, record payment for something like 98,050 eggs that were used um, during the, the whole event on, on banquets and general eating, which is pretty amazing. Um, but they were designed to be uh, ostentatious and, and gifts in themselves to the other side. Once again, this spirit of competition that uh, the, the finest ingredients, the best cooks were employed, uh, and the courses which went on for hours um, were all designed to, to show a, a magnificent um, hospitality which betokened the greatness of the host. Uh, but, but of course, the host wasn't there to enjoy that renown because he was being the guest at the uh, at the other town. Um, for example, peacocks were presented in their full plumage, um, cooked, redressed in their plumage, and then served on uh, dishes amidst foliage, etc. Uh, so, uh, and as, as is seen in the Hampton Court painting, both courts had field kitchens, bread ovens, and things where all this stuff was made. And as I said earlier, the English and, and the French houses in the two towns or the banqueting houses also had um, facilities on site, kitchens and larders and things on site for these great banquets. So they're an important aspect of, of, uh, of what is going on. After the meals, uh, the tables were cleared away as was customary and there were masks um, in which both kings participated quite enthusiastically. Both were very good dancers. Henry was a superlative dancer. He was very proud of his legs. Um, he's known to have shown them to the Venetian ambassador on at least one occasion and compared them favorably to those of the King of France. Uh, and uh, he was he was a very good dancer. And Francis was, uh, was, could shape some moves on the dance floor as well as, as Henry. And so they had uh, fun doing that. And at the last of the banquets on the 24th of June, um, they afterwards they exchanged expensive gifts um, just before parting. Um, so all this strict protocol, which the two kings, which was required and which was necessary to make sure that one didn't um, upset the other, both of them seem to have found that very frustrating because both Francis and Henry were quite gregarious people and they were quite spontaneous. And that probably accounts for what happened when Henry decided that he wanted to wrestle with Francis at one point. We're not exactly sure when it happened, but they were evidently watching wrestlers and having a drink together at some point. And, um, and Henry says, well, let's have a go, shall we? Uh, he hadn't realized that Francis had been trained by a Breton wrestler. And the Bretons were famous, I think, not just in France, but throughout the, the rest of Europe for their, uh, their wrestling skills. And so poor Henry ended up flat on his back. Uh, in fact, so comprehensively was he defeated that under the rules of wrestling, Francis was not obliged to even give him a, a rematch, which he, of course, immediately wanted. A very embarrassing moment, I would have thought. Uh, but, you know, they laughed it off and, you know, everything was okay. But then Francis does this extraordinary thing as well. Uh, on the morning of the 17th of June, the, the Sunday, before one of these banquets that I was talking about, he apparently got up very early and, with just a few attendants, rode over to Guine and turned up at the castle, because Henry, of course, didn't sleep in the banqueting house. He slept for security in the castle. Um, 
and he knocks, wakes up the governor of the castle and says, I want to see the king. And the governor has got little choice when the king of France is telling you, I want to see Henry. Um, so he lets him in and Francis barges into Henry's privy chamber, into his, his, his bedroom, essentially, and says, you know, I am your prisoner. And Henry's barely out of bed and is um, still kind of, you know, putting his trousers on. Uh, and um, he has to reciprocate with um, with some sort of gesture. So he um, gives Francis uh, a collar, a very rich collar. Uh, Francis, who clearly planned the whole thing, produces from his pockets, as it were, very expensive bracelets as gifts for Henry. Um, and it, it causes quite a stir. Uh, the ambassadors from Venice, uh, the Milanese, and a lot of the French uh, commentators all sort of say this was an extraordinary thing to do. And it was, because it was both putting himself in a vulnerable position, but also it was incredibly intimidating as well, because, you know, uh, to turn yourself into the hostage, as it were, of your, of your, um, your ally um, is, to, is to, to sort of demand respect is, is, to, is to put a great deal of pressure on him. I think Francis really was trying to persuade Henry to make this thing work. Whether Henry was quite so keen on it, I'm not sure. Um, a few days later, perhaps not so surprisingly, Henry makes his own journey back to, uh, to see Francis at Ardres. I'm not quite sure that wasn't uh, you know, quite as impromptu as the other one. Some people say the whole thing must have been planned I don't know. I, I think it, it's an interesting, Francis will do this kind of thing with uh, Charles later, Charles V later. So the field ended formally with high mass uh, on the 23rd of June, celebrated by Cardinal Wolsey. Um, there was an outdoor chapel built over the tilt yard and before a large congregation of the leading members, um, Cardinal Wolsey pronounced a plenary uh, indulgence. And just as the high point of the mass came, there appeared um, above the, the mass at, uh, at the height of a crossbow, uh, crossbolt shot, they say, um, some kind of dragon, which is shown in the Hampton Court painting, which I'm hoping you're all being able to see, which apparently hissed and was full of fire and belched smoke and all the rest of it. Um, this was evidently a kite which was uh, drawn on a cable from Ardra to Geens. Um, it had blazing eyes and a hissing mouth, and so some kind of pyrotechnics were involved. Um, such kites were used at about that time of the year in Italy and in England, and I think in France also, to celebrate St John's Day. So this is the 23rd of June, the penultimate day of the event before St John's Day, midsummer. Uh, and so they have this this dragon, and some people think that it was it was built by the English. Uh, some people say that it was meant to be the red dragon, the, the Welsh dragon, um, you know, alluding to Henry's Welsh ancestry. Or perhaps more likely, I think, is um, that it was a salamander. Uh, one French uh, source describes it as une grande salamandre. Au dragon fait artificiellement. Uh, so um, it, it could have been a, um, a salamander flown over the mass as a, as a compliment uh, to Francis I. Um, and that was, the, that was the end effectively of the meeting, the plenary indulgence having been given by Cardinal Wolsey. The following day, 
the kings met for one last time, exchanged more gifts with each other, farewelled and uh, promised that they would meet again. And there was even talk of building a permanent chapel, chapel of peace on the site. So thus concluded the field of cloth of gold. But what is the, the meaning of all of this? Well, as I noted at the outset, the, the field formally augmented an international, sorry, uh, inaugurated uh, an, uh, an international peace and alliance. But it was one that Wolsey understood would only work if both kings felt that they were profiting by its terms, as I said earlier. Um, so therefore, each king met the other um, to reinforce his own position through an offer of cooperation and a threat of its opposite. This was made clear in the uh, first meeting in the tent after they dismounted from their horses and went into a, a tent together as they are seen doing in the Hampton Court painting. Um, Francis apparently hoping to um, impress Henry uh, at the um, put him at his ease, but also perhaps impress him with his uh, sovereign, sovereignty, his sincerity at the same time, told him that he had, had virtually crossed the whole of his kingdom uh, in order to meet him, to which Henry is said by several sources to have replied in the following terms. Sir, neither your, uh, your power nor other the places uh, of your kingdom is the matter of my regard, but the steadfastness and loyal keeping of promises comprised in charters between, between you and me, that observed and kept, I never saw prince with my eyes that of my heart might be more loved. And in other words, Henry reminded Francis, as large and as beautiful uh, a kingdom as he had, and after all, Henry claimed to be king of it himself, uh, he needed Henry's cooperation to have any importance uh, in Christendom beyond it, under the new dispensation of the universal peace, which was advantageous to Henry. Why else, after all, had he come? Francis's view, I think, was equally clear. When the, a few minutes later, uh, at uh, the same meeting, their alliance agreement was formally read out um, for their assent, Henry's title as King of France was read out, and an embarrassed Henry said, uh, expunge that title, uh, and that it was good for nothing. <clears throat> to which Francis counterintuitively responded, well, firstly, he insisted on the value of the title and honour of King of France by ordering that Henry's title be read out aloud again. Then he said to Henry, my brother, now that you are my friend, you are the King of France, King of all my possessions and of me myself. But without friendship, I acknowledge no other King of France than myself. <laughs> In other words, he was really saying Henry could call himself whatever he liked. He remained dependent upon Francis's goodwill and active support if he was to have the kind of significant role in European politics envisaged by the universal peace, uh, whose champion and arbiter he claimed to be. And if he was such, then he expected Henry's support in, his, in the defence of France which Henry claimed to be the king of, 
uh, and by extension, of course, thereby of his own just claims against all enemies, including, and most particularly, of course, Charles V. So Francis welcomed Henry's presence at the field and his proffered friendship as an acknowledgement of his own power over France and his importance beyond it. Why else, after all, was Henry there? So for all the sport and the jousting and the banqueting and gift giving and all that sort of stuff, the two kings interaction on that afternoon of the first day summed up in a few words, really, the whole um, reason for the field of cloth of gold and the deals which they each offered each other. So immediately after the field, Francis returned to Paris via Amiens, where he uh, inspected fortifications and ordered some new work done. From there, he moved to Chantilly and eventually arrived at the royal chateau of Saint-Germain-en-Laye. And there on the 10th of August, Queen Claude gave birth to her fifth child, uh, Madeleine. Uh, throughout the journey back uh, to the capital, Francis had been kept informed of a meeting at Calais between Henry and Charles uh, during July. Uh, Francis was assured correctly that nothing had been done against him uh, at that meeting. Uh, and the, although the field has often been explained bef before this as a deliberate effort by Henry and Wolsey to deceive um, Francis and to immediately ally with Charles V against him, the actual evidence of what went on at those meetings both before the field and afterwards just doesn't support that contention at all. Unfortunately, um, despite the genuine effort initially, Francis couldn't repose enough confidence uh, in the universal peace. He fretted constantly that Charles was um, going to just use peace to build up his strength in order to attack Milan. And there were probably reasonable grounds for thinking that. Um, and he wasn't sure that Henry and Wolsey could really um, hold Charles. Uh, he was therefore persuaded, I think, ill-advisedly to um, carry out a preemptive um, covert attack on imperial territory in the northeast and in the Kingdom of Navarre in 1521. He was trying to, I, I guess, distract Charles, try to give him uh, something to think about other than Milan, put him on the back foot defensively, but also because it was a covert attack um, used using intermediaries, uh, Francis tried to get the Treaty of Universal Peace to be triggered against Charles, because Charles counter-attacks, and then Francis says, oh no, he's attacked me. Um, you must help me under the terms of the universal peace. Um, and uh, Wolsey, initially at least, does try to do that. He calls a conference at Calais in 1521, but it's axiomatic for Wolsey that if Henry is going to be involved in any kind of war, he should be kept on the winning side of it all possible and it looked very likely by the summer of 1521 that Charles was going to, if it really did come to open warfare, that, um, that Charles would win. So in August of 1521, uh, Wolsey agrees a secret treaty at Bruges with Charles, which will bring Henry into a war against uh, Francis. Um, and that's exactly what happens. Um, the details needn't detain us, but um, 
Henry attacks France for a second time in 1523, doesn't do anything strategically significant. But by that time, Charles has not only taken the city of Tournai, which Francis had bought expensively from Henry in 1519, back from Henry, um, but now he's also, he does in fact attack Milan and it is lost to Francis in 1521. And a few years later, in 1524, after the English attack against France is brought to uh, uh, not exactly a conclusion, uh, the, uh, the French king goes back over the Alps and tries to get back Milan. Unfortunately, <clears throat> excuse me, he's defeated at the Battle of Pavia, uh, an illustration of which you should be able to see, um, uh, and is uh, defeated and taken uh, to um, Spain as prisoner of Charles V. Um, he is forced to sign a rather humiliating um, agreement whereby he gives up all his possessions uh, in uh, Italy and other claims which he which he has. Um, but already, even before that agreement, which is known as the um, Treaty of Madrid, uh, is actually agreed in January of 1526, uh, he's desperate for assistance, so Francis turned to Henry and found him, under Wolsey's guidance, more willing uh, to help, but at a price. Uh, and there is a peace which is agreed in 1525, the Treaty of the Moor. So with backing from Wolsey, Francis then, when he gets back, he's released by Charles in March of 1526, goes back to France, and he repudiates the Treaty of Madrid as being unfair and signed under duress. And that remains, incidentally, an object lesson in how uh, not to make peace successfully. Unlike the Anglo-French pieces, which tend to be win-win, or at least can be characterised as that, the uh, peace which Charles and Francis agree in 26 is a win-lose situation as far as Francis is concerned, and so he seeks um, an Anglo-French alliance in, instead. After a further year's negotiation, this uh, alliance was formally agreed in the spring of 1527, just when Charles's rebellious troops sacked Rome to the outrage of Christendom. And this gave Henry and Francis a, a, a cause célèbre um, as the apparent champions of a papacy against the power of the, the emperor. So the 1527 alliance arguably was a legacy of the 1520 meeting it lasted almost 20 years and certainly gave Henry room to manoeuvre as the implications of the break with Rome, which he also began effectively in 1527 with his wish for an annulment of his marriage, began to work themselves out. The two kings met a second time at and, and a final time at a scaled-down version of the field at Calais and Boulogne in October 1532. Uh, Henry was accompanied to that meeting by Anne Boleyn, who was made Marquess of Pembroke, and by the time they'd returned to London, um, the following, early the following year, uh, she was pregnant uh, with his child, um, Elizabeth. Um, and the subsequent break with Rome, which Francis did his best at times subtly to encourage, kept Charles and Henry separated, which suited uh, Francis very well. And, but Francis never seriously contemplated action against Henry uh, at the behest of either the Pope or the Emperor.
even if the alliance which he'd signed in 1527 that he'd hoped might help to bring him back the Duchy of Milan, uh, it never did so. Um, it also, um, from Henry's uh, point of view, if we go back to the, the field of cloth of gold itself, that it had seemed to have worked like a charm. Uh, everything that he'd done, the use of temporary buildings, um, showed him to, you know, to demonstrate a magnificence and to create an impression of an apparently infinite capacity to respond to what was required on the international stage. Um, Francis invested real, if I think perhaps uh, more limited hopes in the field than did Henry. Yet it was still a, a useful demonstration of his own personal, political and material power uh, in Europe, not just to Henry, but to the papacy and of course to Charles V. Um, Francis knew well enough that meeting Henry in 1520 might not it, of itself guarantee his security, but um, it, was, it was a risk worth taking. Uh, and his enthusiastic participation at the time uh, helped to uh, increase his, um, uh, I suppose, his, his standing in, in Europe more widely. So the field was indeed an idealistic phenomenon that, that looked back towards an imagined age when royal chivalry had uh, seemed to serve peace and Christian unity um, among, among European states. Each of the two kings appeared at his strongest and seemed to have everybody where he wanted them at the time. That the field could not itself prevent 50 years of international conflict between Christian rulers subsequently, uh, and it, that really exposed the limits of the rhetoric of peace of the occasion, I think doesn't necessarily prove insincerity on every side of the time. Vast sums of money were spent on hosting a short-lived event, which declared to a wide audience beyond those participating in it, the capacity, confidence and competence of the two hosts and protagonists. Whatever its failings in the wider European context, the field certainly set the tone for Anglo-French relations for the remainder of Henry's reign, as I've been trying to, to demonstrate. They established personal connection at the field, which um, uh, made them regard each other as in Margaret Thatcher's famous phrase, you know, a man I can do business with. And during long periods in the 1520s and 30s, uh, Francis was really Henry's only European ally. There were cultural exchanges, artists that uh, had worked for Francis came to England, that, that competition between the two of them was very stimulating of Henry's own artistic patronage in the 1530s and uh, 40s. And so in that sense, I think it has um, a legacy. Um, the idealism of the field was also, I think, as real as any in human experience, and it should be seen alongside uh, other aspirational moments in European and indeed world history. Uh, international peace treaties and attempts to regularize international violence have rarely worked or very for very long and sometimes not at all. Um, yet even the failure of the League of Nations and the sometimes less than impressive record of the United Nations since 1949 do not prove again lack of insincerity in their establishment. So it's perhaps pointless trying to see um, 
a, a particular outcome or a direct outcome from the uh, from the field in in immediate terms. Um, with their jousting, their dancing, and the like in 1520, uh, Henry and Francis can seem very remote from the ways of our own world leaders, and indeed many ways they are, yet despite the manifest changes in the institutions and the practices of government and society since the 16th century, I think the fundamentals of communication and personal chemistry between leaders uh, are not so different in our own time. I mean, some of the most important shifts in patterns of international relations of the 20th century, for good or ill, uh, were taken at summit conferences such as Potsdam and Yalta. The meeting uh, in, at, at Reykjavik in 1986 between Reagan and Gorbachev was called a diplomatic failure at the time, much like the Field of Cloth of Gold was, but there was a personal chemistry between the two protagonists and did not that meeting play its part in making the world, or at least the Soviet Union, safe enough for Perestroika and Glasnost, uh, and for all that followed that? So it's, it's now a commonplace, I think, in concluding of early modern cultural history to observe that the size of the king's retinue, the lavish hospitality he provided to his guests, his personal demeanour, were all crucial elements in displaying a magnificence um, which, which expressed his personal power. It is always, I think, difficult fully to appreciate past events in their own contexts. Uh, issues of peace and war are viewed very differently in the 21st century than they were in the 16th. Nevertheless, if we can suspend scepticism at what at first sight can indeed seem to be a very bizarre event and try to make sense of the gestures and behaviours um, which are initially inexplicable, perhaps, based on what we've learnt about the, the aristocratic culture of the period, then I think the field of cloth of gold can make sense and be of significance. I think it opens a window on the ideals and pra practices of 16th century statecraft and particularly of war and peacemaking, and through this uh, on how Renaissance monarchy worked. Thank you for watching.